are more aware of how hard change is at this time of the year. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? You're already broken those. <laughs> Six days in, right? Change is hard for us. Change can be real hard. The difficulty we face, and I think our text today will speak to us about some issues we need to consider in this area. The thing that we need to keep in mind is that the work of God is always progressive. So if there's anything about our spiritual lives that is a constant, is that there's always change. Now that creates quite a dynamic within it, doesn't it? I mean, we're in a situation where we love the status quo. We like things to stay the same over and over and over again. And yet God is constantly at work in us to complete that which he has started. And we are always faced with this dynamic that God's trying to change us. And if we don't get a handle on that, where we find ourselves, like some of the people in our text today, we'll find ourselves in a position where we are actually resisting the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We are back in our series in the book of Acts today. I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Our text today is page, page 930, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. We're going to start in the latter part of chapter 6. Uh, yeah, we should dismiss all of our children out to children's ministry. We haven't already done that. Sorry about that. So eager to get preaching, you know, just skip right through that. Besides, they should want to stay and listen to the preaching anyways, right? Yeah, good luck with that. All right. We're going to be looking at, at our text today is page 930. And we've been out of Acts now for a few weeks. So let me just kind of bring us back up to speed where we've been, Okay. And remind us, we're looking at the book of Acts specifically to try to figure out how it is faith should be in our lives. We're looking at the original experiencers, if you will, of faith, seeing how it was for them, and from that trying to learn our, some lessons for ourselves. Now, where we've been so far is chapter 1, we've seen the ascension, the final commissioning and teaching and the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the throne of God. Then we had the coming of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the promise, the day of Pentecost. Then we've had two trials, wedged in both times with first Peter and John and then all the apostles before the Sanhedrin. Mixed in with all of that has been a couple of sermons and how life was like for the early church as it lived out its faith in Jerusalem. Today's text brings us to the final trial in Jerusalem. It also brings us to the final time when the focus of the scriptures is going to be on Jerusalem. The story of the book of Acts is going to move beyond Jerusalem when we finish with our text today. We have a long text to read today. And, you know, I really gave some consideration to not reading it all because we have like 68 to 70 verses to read. But then I got to thinking, you know, is... Is what I have to say about the Scriptures more important than actually reading the Scriptures? So we're going to read it all, all right? So you're going to get bored if you don't follow along in your own Bible. So pull out your own Bibles, pick up, and let's start. We're going to start with verse 8 of chapter 6, which leads us into the experience of chapter 7. Beginning of chapter 6, the church in its growing need has appointed a new team of leadership to go along with the apostles. One of those guys is named Stephen. 
And we pick up with his story in verse 8 of chapter 6. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, just like the apostles were doing. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. The Freedmen's Synagogue were probably those who had been slaves, who had Jewish, Jewish people who had been slaves, who had come to Jerusalem when they got out of slavery, or their ancestors had been slaves, and they had set up this Freedmen's, Freedmen's Synagogue. And they were in discussions with Stephen. But verse 10, but they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke. And that with that, their pride was hurt. So we, thus verse 11. Then they in, induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came and they dragged him off and they took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Notice those who are equated with God and Moses, the holy place being the temple and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So not scared, not intimidated, not angry. He's at peace. And he has a divine glow, if you will, about him. Now we come to verse chapter 7, where, if you will, Stephen's going to give a defense. But it's a roundabout defense, one from which we can learn many things about our own journey with God. So the high priest says to him, is this true? Brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had a move to this land in which you now live. He didn't get an inheritance in it, not even a foot. Of ground, But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that will serve, they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave the covenant of circumcision. This being... So this being so, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the twelve patriarchs. So he's working through an Old Testament survey of God's redemptive activity. He continues that with verse 9. The patriarchs, being jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him governor over Egypt and over his whole household. Then a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan with great suffering, and our forefathers could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers the first time. 
The second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father, Jacob, and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our forefathers died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Which would have been a little frustrating to the Jews because Shechem was actually in Samaria and they didn't like Samaria. You know, but that's where the forefathers were buried. As the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king ruled over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our forefathers by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful before God. He was nursed in his father's home three months, and when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as his own son. So Moses was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptian and was powerful in his speech and actions. As he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but, but they didn't understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and, and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, are, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this disclosure, Moses fled and became ex an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the desert of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. Notice it's at Mount Sinai. It's not at Mount Zion, but it's at Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. So Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take the sandals off your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. Again, this is on Mount Sinai, not Mount Zion where the temple is, but on Mount Sinai there's holy ground. And I have seen, certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning and, and have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea, and the desert for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Kind of pointing to Jesus, right? He is, he is the one who was in the congregation in the desert together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our forefathers. He received living oracles that he gave to us. Our forefathers were unwilling to obey him but pushed him away. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And so they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who, who brought out, us out of the land, we don't know what's become of him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. Then God turned away and gave, up, gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As is written in the book of the prophets, and that would have been all of the minor prophets, it would have been the book of the prophets. Did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? No. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. I believe that's a quote from Amos. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony in the desert. It's kind of shifting gears here now from, from that theme to, 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 to the temple and the tabernacle. It says, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony in the desert. Just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had set. Our forefathers in turn received it. And with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that, that, they drove, that God drove out before our forefathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might approve a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High doesn't dwell in sanctuaries made with their hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he, he saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And the fact that Jesus is standing and not sitting probably has the implication that Jesus is, is coming out of some language from the book of Daniel, standing before the Ancient of Days as the one who's ready to judge. It says, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they screamed at the top of their voices and they stopped their ears. They covered their ears so they wouldn't hear any more blasphemy and they rushed together at him and they threw him out of the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man called Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. Which is an interesting way of describing death for the believer. It's really not death, it's sleeping until our salvation is complete. It's a long passage of Scripture. Now, I want to process a few things with you, but admittedly, what we're going to do today is, is it's kind of like cleaning up your room by sticking everything in a closet and pushing it up underneath the bed. You know, it, it's going to look neater, but it's really not going to be clean. You know, I, I, I'm going to kind of try to wrap up a lot of stuff for you from this passage and kind of give you a handle to carry it. But 
there, there's still a lot of debriefing, a lot of processing, a lot of discussion with God we need to have from this text that we're not going to get to in, in, in this message this morning. Let me just kind of give you a quick overview of the so what in this passage. What, what we really have here in this passage is the very first Christian martyr. This is the story of the very first Christian martyr. First guy to die in the name of Christ was not an apostle. It was a layman. Not an apostle. Not one of the, one, not one of the credentialed leaders, but a layman who was proclaiming his faith. And from there, and, and because he was a Hellenistic Jew, which meant he was fully Jewish, he just didn't really speak Aramaic. He only spoke Greek. And, and the Jews, the real Jews, the Jew-Jews, if you will, the, the man's man, they spoke Greek because everybody spoke Greek, but they spoke Aramaic. And so he, was, he didn't have the same kind of protection, the same reputation. You know, it wasn't the same threshold to get to as you would with the apostles before he was vulnerable to attack, and, and they went after him. And he died for his faith. And when he had an opportunity to stand before his leaders... He proclaimed truth to them. You might question his wisdom about how he ended, but actually it was a very typical Greek form of, of how you made your case. When you got to the end, you became bold, and by your shock, by your aggressiveness, you tried to convince those that you were arguing with to take your position, to make a change. It didn't work so well for him. They ended up stoning him. They got so enraged, they drove him out of the city, and they stoned him. Get the impression that they really didn't follow the normal customs. From what I could read, the way they generally stoned somebody was they pushed them off like a 15 to 20 foot cliff. And then they were laying at the bottom. They, they had them laying on their back on, on the bottom. And they went, then the first witness would t- find the biggest boulder they could and they would push it off the cliff. And it was literally land right on the individual and just crush them. But this we get much more of the imagery that they just dragged them out of the city and then they were, they're just picking up handheld stones and just throwing them at them, which allows him to kneel. It's hard to kneel when you've got a 100-pound rock on your chest, you know? And so they, they killed, and, and they probably didn't have the authority to do it because the Romans held on to the authority to do it. So we have our first Christian martyr. We also have Stephen's survey of Old Testament history. <laughs> It's interesting, he, he takes books and books and books and books, and he boils it down to one chapter. And, and he's, he's got two points in here. They've charged him with blasphemy. Blasphemy against the law, against Moses, and a blasphemy against God, in particular the temple. Okay? He really does answer their charges. And here's, here, here's how his, his argument flows. First of all, he said, his argument is, God is not limited to the temple. God has never been limited to the temple. The temple is not the house of God. It's a place of prayer. God met Abraham where? On Mount Zion? No. In Haran? No. In Mesopotamia. In Chaldea. Where did God show favor to Joseph? In Egypt. Where did God meet Moses on the mountain, in the wilderness. God's not limited to the temple. The tabernacle, which God was perfectly content with, was mobile. Because faith is a moving experience. 
because God is always on the move. And yet they built this temple, and now they had put God in a box. And their assumption was that if God did anything great, if God did anything to really fulfill his promises, if God was going to bless the nation, it was going to happen through the temple, because that's where God lived. And he said, and you got that all wrong. You got that all wrong. God is not limited to the temple, never has been. The second thing he proves from their history, which is related to the law, and Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, he said, you guys have always, we as a people have always rejected the activity of God. We've always rejected the activity of God. Joseph, Joseph had a dream, right? Joseph was going to, the other sheaves were bowing down to him. He was going to be the leader among his brothers, right? He was the blessed one. What does the, the embryo of the nation do? They reject it. They sold Joseph off into slavery. First time they went down into Egypt, they didn't even recognize him. Didn't even recognize him. It was only on the second trip when Joseph opened it up that, and revealed himself that they actually even recognized him. They've always rejected the ones that God has prepared. Moses was rejected not once but twice. God had his hand on him. He was beautiful before God, as, 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 um, as Stephen puts it. And he's, he's literally trained in the very best that Egypt has to offer. In fact, the, some other places in Jewish writings, they, they, they say that, that the Pharaoh brought in scholars from Athens and other places to come in and train Moses. He was the brightest of the bright. And he was selected to be the deliverer, to be the leader of the people of God. What do they do? They reject him. Not once, twice. They reject him while he's still living in Egypt, where he seeks to try to change their status, change their condition by beginning to push away the Egyptians. And they say, who, who are you to be our ruler? We don't take you as our ruler. And they rejected him. So he flees to Midian. There he meets God and he comes back. Leads the people out. Got lots of credentials, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of miracles, a lot of food, a lot of water, a lot of dividing of the seas. There's a lot of great stuff happening. What do they do? They reject him again. Well, they don't know what happened to Moses, so make us a calf so we can have our own God that we can control. And then in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Turned away from Moses, turned away from God, turned back to Egypt. Said, you know, you, you guys are just, we've always been like this. We, we have always rejected the work of God. And because of that, you guys have rejected the righteous one. In fact, you guys became the executors of the Son of God. So if I, if I committed blasphemy, uh-uh. Because God isn't limited to this temple. And I'm not trying to change the law. I acknowledge the one who has come as the fulfillment of the law. So that's Stephen. So... so if you try to fill in your, your, your blanks, if you will, Stephen's surveys of God's activity reveals that God meets his people everywhere and that the chosen people regularly reject those God sends to them. The last point from the what, then we'll get into the so what, is that the ministry in Jerusalem comes to an end. Chapter 8, we're in Samaria. Then the Ethiopian eunuch, and then it begins to move out with Paul and with his conversion. We're, we're ready to move beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And it's the trial of Stephen. We've gone from threats to Peter and John 
to the twelve apostles being flogged, being whooped, if you will, to actual death of a Christian, the first martyr, and now the gospel is ready to move to the next place. So, that's the what. Now, let's ask the question about the so what. Why was it... Here's, here's the... Here's the corpus of my question, and I think where you and I can extract the value for our own spiritual journey. Why was it so hard for the religious leaders to recognize the activity of God? Whether it was in Joseph, or in Moses, or in Jesus. Why was it so hard? I mean, these guys, I mean, we, we, can, we can be critical of them, but these were devout fellas. They were prideful, no doubt. They enjoyed the position. They were protective, but they were devout fellas. They were the type of people who would show up for church on a Sunday morning, even though the parking lot's icy and there's, a, there's snow on the ground. I mean, they were the devout fellas. They were people like you and I. And yet they constantly didn't see the activity of God. Why is that? And, and often... I, the best way, to, I'm trying to, I've struggled all weekend with how the best way to express this, but their assumptions about how God moved and worked and did his stuff led them to resist the work of God. And what I want to say to us this morning, and then work through some, some so what stuff here, is the reason why you and I have a, such a hard time with spiritual change is because our spiritual assumptions often put us in a position where we are naturally inclined to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let that sink in for a minute. Often, the reason why you and I struggle with spiritual change, God growing us, completing His work within us, put us in a place where we're shaped in the image of Christ, one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with that is that our ideas of how God should work actually lead us to a place where we are resistant to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. In verse 51, he says to them, you are a stiff-necked people. You have uncircumcised hearts. You have hearts that aren't tuned towards God. Uncircumcised hearts and ears, and you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your forefathers did. And the reason why is because their assumptions were wrong. Their assumptions were that God had to do whatever he was going to do in and through the temple. And their assumption was that it would somehow bless the nation and therefore it would take them up with it. And those were the parameters. And if God's activity didn't fit into that parameters, it couldn't be God's, God's activity. We get into a place where we have our own assumptions about the way God works. And again, this is what, you know, as I said before, we're not going to be able to deal with everything. This part of this that all we're doing really is really kind of pushing the stuff up underneath the bed so it just looks a little neat and cleaner. But let's, let's take some things. You and I, I think, if we're going to be people who stay in sync with God, we have to learn how to rethink. We, ha- we have to re- learn how to rethink some spiritual things. And, and in, in order for that, and, and if we don't do that, we will find ourselves in a place where we are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Let me just give you several areas. And, and, and these are, are tied to our text. And there's probably lots of other places, but these are tied to our, our, our text. The first of those is we need to rethink who it is that God uses. Who it is that God uses. There are so many today who, who find themselves resisting the work, the direction, the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives simply because they're saying to God, not me. Not me. You know, we have this notion that it's the people with the degree on the wall that God uses. The people with the title that's been given to them by the church, that those are the ones that God uses. The rest of us, God doesn't use people like us. And until we change our assumptions about who God uses, you and I will always find ourselves resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, what qualified Stephen to be used of God was that he was full of grace and power. Those are things that are available to every single one of us. God's grace and God's power. It wasn't how many degrees he had wasn't how many Sunday school classes he had set through. It wasn't how much, you know, somebody was willing to pay him to do it or anything else. He was full of grace and power. The number one issue for us in serving God is not ability, but it's availability. And it's understanding that every single ministry matters. Somehow or another, we think of what, what happens in the Four square feet behind this pulpit. Well, I wander around a lot, so we'd have to make that a little bit bigger. That that's somehow or another important. Or the conversations that I might have in my office with, with others. That's what's important. But serving preschoolers, that doesn't really matter. Making sure the toilets are clean for a Sunday morning, that doesn't really matter. All ministry matters. And all of us can make a difference for the kingdom. The, I'm, when I was a kid... You know, we, I used to ride mini bikes and, and snowmobiles. And back then, they used to sell them where they had governors on them, where they wouldn't go over a certain speed. The biggest governor on the expansion of the kingdom of God is our availability to be used. It's, it was saying, what? That's not me. God does that in other people. He doesn't do that in me. He doesn't use me in that way. We need to rethink who it is that God uses. It wasn't the apostles who were the first martyrs. It was the lay people that were the first martyrs. The one who was full of grace and truth. We also need to rethink how God works. You and I regularly underestimate how counterintuitive the work and the grace of God is in our lives. And with that, we find ourselves with assumptions about God's activity that just do not hold biblical weight. Statements like, Who are, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Or that whoever wants to be greatest among you must become the servant of all. For most of us, 
Those are ideals that we love to put on our walls. But, but let me take a little bit of a Stephen roll and look you right in the eye and say most of us do not believe that and don't want to believe that. We just don't. That's not the way the world works. Those who are great are the ones who are at the top of the heap, not at the bottom. They're the ones with the servants waiting on them, not the ones who are serving others. The people who are great are the Lord of the manor, from my wife's Downton Abbey addiction, you know, who are going to sit at the head of the table instead of the servants who are down below preparing the soup. And that's the way the world should be. It's the way we think. And we don't, we, we don't buy into this counterintuitive activity of the grace of God that the greatest are really the servants of all. Etc. I'll give you a couple of examples. A little later in the book of Acts, and we're going to get there in, in, in chapter 20, Paul's going to make a statement quoting Jesus, where it says, where it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's in the scriptures, quote from Jesus. We don't really believe that. We, we say we do, but we really don't believe that. Our assumption is that the more we have is a sign that God's blessed us. The people who have the better careers, the better health, the whatever, whatever, the, the ones who are prosperous and successful and comfortable, those are the blessed ones. Not the ones who have given the most or are given the most. To give you an example, if we really believe that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, the average Bible-believing Christian in America would give more than the 2 to 3% that they give to God's work. They just would. So we can say we believe this, but fundamentally we don't. Our assumption says it just doesn't work that way. I'm, I'm better off with the more I keep, not with the more I give away. And, and so we, 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 we can say we believe it, but we really don't. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know, when was the last time that you really conceived of the fact that the best way for you to experience God's blessing is to have a hundred people to serve. That your life was dominated week in and week out by caring to the spiritual needs of somebody else. It's more blessed to give, right? Than it is to receive. But we don't conceive of it that way. We think the people who are really blessed are the ones who have all the time to themselves. You see what I mean? And and I want to tell you, as long as we kind of, you will, satisfy ourselves that we, we know this stuff is true, but we don't really believe it, it's not the assumptions by which we govern our lives, we're going to find ourselves in a place where we are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And change is going to be incredibly hard. Because we're constantly going to be working against the activity of God in our lives. And we wonder why we struggle spiritually. Sometimes we look at the promises of God. And our assumption is, is that the promises of God there are, are, are somehow to, to make our lives comfortable and joyful and to give us hope and etc. You know, the promises of God are given to us for one reason only, to make us more faithful. It's the only reason why God has given us his promises is to make us more faithful. So that as you read the promises of God, you ratchet up the degree of obedience that you have to his activity in your life. 
Not to somehow ease your pain in tough moments. Though it has that corollary effect. But God gives us His promises to ratchet up our degree of faithfulness as we go forward. i got one last point. Because I'm getting tired and i got to do this all over again. Because this... This is, this, is heavy, this is heavy stuff. I understand. You know, we also have to, we, we have to re, rethink who God uses and how God works. But we also have to rethink where God works. I mean, Stephen's whole argument to them was, you know, you, you've boiled it all down to this temple. You, you can't see beyond this, you know, this, this, this temple mount. God doesn't work anywhere else but here. That's the way you see it. That's not the way it works. God's working everywhere. He made everything. His, the earth is his footstool, you know? God sits on the heavens. And we, we limit where we see God working. Now, I don't want to make that restriction geographically in terms of working in our homes or our neighborhoods or where we work or around the world or whatever. That, those are wonderful applications. That's the low-lying fruit. I want us to recognize that God acts in different areas of our lives as well. He acts in our relationships. He acts in our finances. He acts about our doubts. He acts with our fears. He acts against our sins. He deals with our hurts. He works on our intellects. God works everywhere. He works on our personalities. He works on our bodies. God works in all areas of our lives. Somehow or another, we want to sometimes just compartmentalize it down to how much Scripture I really know and memorize. But the rest of it is kind of off limits somewhere. God works everywhere. Not in every, every square foot of the planet, in all the region above it, but he works in every dimension of our lives as well. And we need to rethink that and understand that and embrace it if we're going to be people who no longer resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, I think we have a couple of options kind of before us. Some of us, our reaction is like those of the stone throwers. We're just going to fight God tooth and nail in this journey. Others are going to be like Paul. Try to act like we're really not engaged. But we're not too unhappy with the fact that there's a lot of resistance going on. Or some of us are going to be like Stephen. We're going to embrace God's activity because we've rethunk it all. And those are the ones who are going to get to see Jesus. Like Stephen did. Let's pray together. God, we've read your word today. There's lots, lots in it that we didn't even touch on today. We claim your promise today that your spirit's within us by our faith in Jesus Christ so that you can guide us into all truth. Take what we've talked about today. Take what we haven't talked about today and work in our lives that we would not be Rejectors, but embracers of your incredible truth and grace. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.